Episode 220 of the PJ Archive is an interview I did with the English drummer Kenny Jones, who's best known for his work in the groups Small Faces, Faces and The Who. He was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2012 as a member of Small Faces and Faces, and he is now their only surviving member. Kenny owns Hurtwood Park Polo Club in Surrey, where, as well as polo matches, concerts are occasionally held, in which he plays with his current band, The Jones Gang. This interview took place at his impressive family home nearby in 2018, when Kenny was promoting his book, Let the Good Times Roll, My Life in Small Faces, Faces and The Who. Rock stars love country houses, don't they? No, it's not just so much rock stars. Uh, I, for me, the, the countryside's in my blood. Even though I'm from the East End of London, yeah. so I'm a proper Cockney. You know, it's born within the sound of Bow Bells. Uh, but we're just a re- regular family from the East End, and we couldn't afford holidays and stuff like that. And they had no kind of holidays in those days. We couldn't really travel, you know, across their fortune, probably. And we used to go hot picking every year. And so I spent two months at least of every year probably longer hot picking uh, my first birthday hot picking number one birthday right up until I was 13 just before I played drums I grew up it was right by the side of the River Medway yeah. uh, just outside um, Tunbridge Tunbridge yeah. yeah and there's a little place called Tootley a village called Tootley and the River Medway runs right through it normally EastEnders when they make good and make, make a few problems against successful in every way they end up going to Epping that way and Loughton and all yeah, those like Rod yeah like Rod yeah. and I was Rod when he got, first got some money in, in the faces and all that and was really successful his first house he bought in Windsor or just outside Windsor a place called Winfield and he lived there for a while and that really is Elton John land that right. around there what year did he move here I lived there for, oh, for about 30 years right what a fantastic career you're having I mean really well it's kind of weird it's like I've been a whirlwind so I, before I met Ronnie Lane there was a shop in the East End the only shop that was a music shop it was called the J60s it was in Green Lane Manapoa I heard about this uh, this drum what happened was I was cleaning a car right, pocket money when I was about 12 we'd get half a crown for our car you know so it's a lot of money now. Yeah. So the, the, me and my mate was cleaning the car, and all of a sudden I looked up at the sponge hitting me right in the face and just threw it at me. And I went, and he said, What? Uh, he said, I think we should form a skiffle group. So I went on the other side, polishing the rifle. So I basically got curious. I said, What's a skiffle group? Mm-hmm. And he said, It's when you get a tea chest, a broom handle, mm-hmm. and a piece of string from one corner to the other, and that makes the bass sound. I said, Oh, yeah. And then he said, Then you get your mum's washboard out yeah. which we did use in those days yeah, yeah, carbolic yeah. and stuff and then so you get your grand's thimbles and stick them on the end of your fingers and you go like that and it makes a noise and I went by this time I thought he's gone nuts yeah. you know he's just loony and he said there's a skiffle group on TV tonight so we had this TV hadn't long been, been around yeah. Yeah. so we had this first small TV with, it looked like an eye you know just about was that Molly Donegan on the telly, was it? It was Molly Donegan. Right. Yeah. Singing Rock on the Line. Um, yeah, Rock on the Line. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. 
So I fell in love with the banjo. Yeah. And I said to my mate, okay, let's. I remember seeing a banjo in a pawn shop next to Bethel Green Station, right? So we went up the next day to buy it with no money. There's no excitement. Yeah. Just want it. Went up there, and it'd been in there for months. Get there, gone. Mm-hmm. Said to the guy, where's the banjo? He said, guys come back, it's paper, it's a pawn shop. Yeah. So I was pissed off with that, so we went out and um, walking back home, my mate, my mate said, you're really upset, aren't you? So I said, yes, I am. So I really wanted that banjo. He said, well, look, my mate's got a, a drum kit. Shall I get him to bring it around this afternoon? So I brought the drum kit around that afternoon, which turned out to be one bass drum and a floor tom-tom and one and a half sticks. Well, one, two sticks, and one of them was broken in half. So, also drums were in emotionally connected to me. I didn't realise at the time. See, my, my uncle, my uncle Dave, was a, a mace thrower, uh, uh, which is a band leader. Yeah. Um, and he couldn't play a note, you know. He just brought his Catholic processions that went around the East End of London with side drummers and, you know, trumpets and things and all that. Brass band, basically. And he led the way down the, down the streets. And I used to follow him as the, this row of side drummers, you know. And I used to pretend I was a side drummer when I was a kid and marched by the side and just pretend to play. Then I'd rush back to my dad's shed and get an old biscuit tin, turn it upside down with two bits of firewood, and I used yeah. to play away like that. Yeah. So that's, it must have been in me. Yeah. I was still at school when I was in, in the small places, you know. And well, prior to that, when I first met Ronnie Lane. So I learned to play drums at sort of 13 or so. Like that. And, and I met Ronnie Lane when I was a few months later, and we formed a band called The Outcast, and yeah. well, I was still at school, and then we. I, you know, she's all learning the ropes, she's learning to play guitar. Mm. So it's one of those sort of things. And, and, and then all of a sudden, I think I was, I just turned 16 when we had our first hit record. So it's been a whirlwind. I have yeah. no, that's all I do. And I don't know anything else. So I had one job, Ronnie Lane got me a job. He worked, because he's older than me. He was older than me. He got a job in Selma's. Selma's making the amplifiers. Okay. And, uh, uh, testing, testing the guitars out. So he got me a job in there to, um, when I first sort of left school. Yeah. Uh, briefly, and we both got the sack at the same time. <laughs> what were you giving the sack for? Oh, we just, the both of us turned up late all the time. Because okay, yeah. we had other things on our mind, like being in the band and music. And girls. We used to go down, mm-hmm. yeah, Denmark Street. <coughs> and um, a cafe called the Giaconda. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Famous one. Yeah. And then, um, that wasn't at the time. And people like myself, Running into small faces, I mean, eventually met Steve, we all went down there. And uh, David Jones was in there, which is Barry. Okay, yeah, so yeah, yeah. So he ended up playing with us in the very early days yeah. as well. So, wow. And was, I was considered being the fifth member of the small faces of the sort of kind of weird. He had the hair as well in those days, didn't he? Right, my, the problem yeah. was, you know, he, he, we, we, we were slightly different musical avenues there, because he was sort of more band the bomb at that time yeah. and so we protest songs and stuff yeah. like that and we were trying to be happy and uh, like no, <laughs> he was a great guy great mod yeah. Yeah. so David Jones can you tell me where did the hairstyles of the small faces come from oh that's very modern in those days I think because the, 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 the Beatles were sort of Put about his mop tops and all the dinner, you know. So you put a curtain in the middle. Yeah, and he just parted it. Parted it. 
in the seven, the, mod, the modern revolution started right around about the same time as we formed the band. Like before, before we formed the, the small faces, we were playing together. You know? yeah. um, so we, well, nobody had any money in those days, so we couldn't. There were no real clothes <coughs> shops at all. I, I remember growing up in black and white, along with most of the kids in the East End in those days, yeah. and slightly grey or black and white. It was a foggy London town, so it was yeah. all dismal. The minute I became uh, approaching the teenager, and I saw, I remember seeing a shop in Allgate, which had a bright red caravel, and I just went and bought it straight away. I mean, I, I, yeah, had, to sa- I had to save up for it, like, uh, yeah. like 30 bucks. And the scooters that the oh yeah no I, my first my first scooter I rode was the one that we nicked oh, yeah. I made my first appearance in Arthur Square Nick oh, which is <laughs> police station where, where we lived because we nicked it and uh, the guy was we discovered that the clutch was broken yeah. so we repaired the clutch and we put windows all over it put the bubbles and stuff like that yeah. and do all that and then the guy got got his motorbike back he couldn't believe he got back in better shape than it was before. <laughs> Did you most enjoy that period with the small faces? Was that the most well, enjoyable of them? We were all great players. We became great players and, and we uh, wanted to be recognised for our musicianship, not, not just this rink-a-dink pop band. Sort of. yeah. So we couldn't lose this teeny bopper image. You know, and that drove Steve nuts more than anything. You know, uh, It was OK, but whilst we were away in Germany on tour, Andrew Oldham released a record, uh, which really did for a laugh. And we read about it in, in, whilst we were in away, whilst we were in Germany. It was a hit. which picked up Melody Maker. Suddenly we got a hit. Which was that? HQ Park. No, oh, no, right. no, not HQ Park. Big Park. Lazy Sunday. Lazy Sunday. Because yeah, yeah. it's, it's one of those ones that everybody loves, and I, I, I don't hate it. But oh. It doesn't really represent what we're all about. Oh, I meant to ask. I know you do. It drives me nuts. <laughs> When we were talking about the house earlier, I was going to ask if you'd get on with your neighbours. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't get along with our neighbours. <laughs> sure they've they've got to. Yeah. yeah. But I'll be living next to a rock star. It can be a bit of a nightmare if you're going to be playing loud music. I'm very considerate. I make sure, sure that I've rehearsed in a soundproof room and all that stuff. Can you explain why the small faces was then called the faces when the change of lineup happened? Well, there's nothing small about us after that. Because Rob was a bit taller, but so was Woodard. And only that, the first album we, we made was on Warner Brothers. And uh, as we were going to sign the, the contract, it said Small Faces on there. And we went, oh, we're doing bad, we don't want to be called for Small Faces, we're, we're called for something else. And they said, we can't have all this money unless you we advance, <laughs> unless you call called the Small Faces. We were, Okay, we'll do it. Okay, fine. <laughs> we wanted the money because we needed it. But, but so we said, okay, right. The first album will agree to be small faces. Thereafter, we've called the faces. So it worked out naturally like that. But it really was because the, the other two were taller than. No, not, not well, they were, No, not really. But it's just one of those things that came up. In other words, yeah. you know, there was nothing small about us anyway. No, it was a different band. Yeah. Whatever. And uh, we wanted to lose that small image because we were playing with it. I mean, I'll never forget. When we did first did like uh, Really Steady Go and Thank the Lucky Stars was the first TV show we did and then Top of the Pops later and whatever. So when we on TV you look taller than what you are. Mm-hmm. Right? So when we did the gig, you know, we were rushing off, you know, these screaming fans grabbed on the backstage door. And as you go out of the car, all I heard was this this girl go, ooh, and they small. Full <laughs> 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 shit deflated like that. <laughs> That brought me down to us, so anyway. 
Ogden's Nut Gone Flake is yeah. considered one of the greatest British albums ever, isn't it? Well, it's in the, it's in the top 100 best albums of all time. Yeah. At number 50. You must have been very tough because that obviously yeah. was that list came out many years after you all. That's right. Yeah. The 50th anniversary of mm. Ogden's Nut Gone Flake right. this year. Are you doing a special commemorative yeah. edition? Yeah. yeah, that's coming out, I think, in July. Mm -hmm. And also along with my book, which is coming out. Yeah. And my book comes out at the end of this month. So we're going to tie the two together a little bit. Yeah. A bit of fun. Did you think at the time uh, when you made the album that it would be considered a classic? I think when we made it, we were thinking, how's it going to go? How's it going to be received? And yeah. Because it's completely off the wall. First yes. ever concept album. I mean, a lot of people compared it to Sergeant Peppers. I don't see any similarity to it whatsoever. Yeah. When we finished Old Dead's Not Gonna Play, I, I went up to everybody. I said, I said to, uh, to Steve, Ronnie, and Matt, I said, This will make a great cartoon. Because I saw it as an animation film at that yeah. time. And they sort of looked at me and went, and sort of did that nine of it after that. And I, yeah. I've always seen it as an animation film. So that's my, I'm going to say that on this one. That's my mission now in life, is to keep the small faces name alive. I'm making that into a full-length animation film, which will be a great kiss. If you remember when um, Aladdin came out, yeah, that film. That was a film that the audience, it was an audience, it was, a, it was everybody, yeah. young and old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I'm aiming. Okay. So that's to me, and also, you know, uh, the music. When you write, when you write the, the when you try to script it at the moment. When you write the storyline now, I've been working on this for years. So. Who'll do the animation then? Well, I've talked to uh, a guy called Uli Mayer, right. who's one of the world's top animators. He, I first met him years ago when I talked to him about it, and um, he knew about it, he loved the idea. Um, he's turned Spielberg down like three times. Okay. He's he's I, I met him when he's saving, saving Space Jam. Okay. And he's, he's got these massive houses around Oxford Street yeah. all full of animators yeah. and calling up there to the storyboarding Space Jam and tell me how this was going on that's going on yeah. then I met a lovely lady called Una Woodruff Una Woodruff is uh, I, tell, I got introduced to her by a guy who was, he was a drummer for Unit 4 Plus 2 oh yeah, yeah. and he became yes, yeah, yeah. 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 he went off to be a professor yeah. and worked for NASA and he came back to live in this country and I got introduced to him again yeah. and I was telling him about the idea he said, well, you, I, he lived in Glastonbury he said, well, you've got to come down here and, and Glastonbury is the place where I described what I wanted to do and, she, and he said, I, I've got this lady you've got to meet her, Una Woodrow she wrote a book called Cat Ridge which is beautifully animated drawings and do you think that Steve and Ronnie had a, a, a feeling that they would die young? Do you know, I, I, I had a feeling Steve would, I don't know about Ronnie, I mean, when he got multiple sclerosis, I knew he was going to get it, funny enough, because he's, they say it's not hereditary as well, but for me it is, because basically his mum had multiple sclerosis, and we used to carry his mum up and down the, the stairs and the, the block of flats he ended up in. And so then Ronnie, Ronnie was always forgetful. Mm. So we'd get halfway home from bloody Birmingham or something like that, and go, oh, we'll have to go back. Why, Ron? I thought I'd left my base here. I've got it. So, so we'll go back. And then forever, he was tripping up. 
we, we, and we accused him of being drunk and stuff like that, and he wasn't. When Ronnie moved, eventually moved to America, he got to the point where he was, we did the arms tour to, to raise money for him and everything like that. And then he was in a wheelchair, he'd stand up and sing Goodnight Irene at, at the end, it's very touching. And then, um, then he got worse when he went to America, and we seemed to see him I like that song, How Long You Did with Slim Charles. That's right, yeah, no. It's a great band, but... Um, and what do you think would have happened had they all survived? Do you think you guys would still be performing like this? I, li- I like to think that we would overcome our problems. Um, we were so, so young, and the music business was so different in those days. Because, you know, now you think twice about breaking up, because, you know, it's... There's a lot you can lose in your, um, your, your solo careers, either work they go or your projects that you do now another band that you ever go. So I'd like to think we would have stayed together. I think what happened was Ogden's Not Gone Float, right, which is the album over there. When we made that, we all thought, how do we fuck follow this? How do we top that? Yeah. How do we top it? And I think that represented the doubt in our mind, how do we top it? In other yeah. words, are we finished? Yeah. That sort of thing. It's time to move on. I think certainly for Steve, the small place's career ended, but it was still ended on a, on a, on a, it was a bad note, but a good note. It was never known as a druggy band or anything like that. It was all happy sort of music, as you know. So it was only when Steve left the small place and joined Humble Pie, and I, we were in the faces, so that's when his druggy thing and his thing happened, not, not, not in the small place. I'm very protective of the small place's image. Not to say that we didn't take drugs or whatever, we, you know, mild things in those days, you know, like, up this and say, you know, keep away from them. We do two or three gigs in one night, so you have to stay away. People would listen to Execute Park and think, that's definitely a drug. Well, in those days you had LSD flowing around and all kinds of stuff like that, and everybody sort of dabbled in it, no one, no one sort of became a big drug owner. Yeah. Those left to Americans in their cocaine. And you are the only surviving member of the yeah. places, which is, must make it bittersweet to get an award for them. It, it is, I mean, because we, we were inducted into, into the Rock Hall of Fame uh, twice. Yeah. Once in the, uh, the small faces and the next one for the, for the faces, but they did it all at the same time, which is yeah. great. And it's being the only surviving member, I was, I was really. Mac was still alive then when we got that. Yes. They might die shortly after that, really, a couple of years later. But, and it's a lonely feeling because the emotional band for me is, is the small places because yeah. that's where we started it. Mm. And we're all young. And for me to be end up on my own, it's kind of weird because someone said, doing an interview somewhere with me, Rod, and Woody somewhere, and um, the same question came up. Yeah, don't you feel? Don't you feel? Don't you miss them? I said, and I said, it's quite lonely. And they said, that's been weird. You haven't got them around you anymore. And then Rod straight in like a shot. He said, he said, what are you talking about? Said, you got us? Yeah, yeah. Got us? Me yeah. and Ronnie? Yeah. And that was it. I felt, I felt really wanted from that moment. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Let, let me sum it up this way, because I mean, the small places, right? Because I get asked, which is the best band? I've been them, you know. Like, I said, well, I, it's, they're all special. Great fun, yeah. yeah. 
they all mean different things at the same time. Yeah, they're all at the same level. So the small faces is the most creative band I've ever been in. Yeah. The most sensitive, most sensitive one for me because you know it's, a, it's yeah. the first one. And the faces was so much fun, so much like a party every night band. So that was just fun, just having a great time, whatever. And it was kind of we were together longer in the faces than we were in the small faces. Huh? And then the Who was, well, I have to say, it was the most exciting because of the, the nature of the, the music. You, yeah. know. you really enjoyed it, that? Do you enjoyed them? Yeah, I did. Their company? I, did. I mean, it was, a, it was a great experience to go through. Although the hardest thing about joining the Who was was um, learning the, the Who's repertoire. Yeah. Uh, in, in record time. Because yeah. he was a bit uh, unconventional, Keith Green, well, wasn't he? Yeah, so you know, I never, I, when I joined, I was asked yeah. to, to join the Who. To replace Keith Moon, because right. right? when when Pete Townsend asked me to join, it was because they now had a chance to do something different, completely different. Yeah. And so I thought we were going to do something different. And in the end, we ended up playing all the old stuff. How did you get on with Roger and Pete? Got on really well. And John at the time. And John, yeah. yeah. We, I mean, we all, uh, when I joined the Who, I was going for a divorce, and so was so was John, and so was. So was Pete. Yeah. So we were all in the bottom, <laughs> except Roger. <laughs> Roger would have his dinner time. Well, that yeah. it wasn't a big dinner, but no, we all got on great. You know. Yeah. So yeah, it's kind of. Then I found myself with all these, you know, replacing Keith and stepping yeah. Keith in shoes. I thought it yeah. didn't, didn't, didn't run through with me because that wasn't the case at the time. So I found it. I ended up slowly getting to grips with it. You've been good mates with Keith, haven't you? Oh, yeah. yeah. One of my prized possessions, which I'm trying to find, but I can't find it, is a telegram from Keith Burns. Well, when I first played Wembley yeah. Stadium, he sent me a telegram saying to Kenny, the drummer of the Who, good luck, Mrs. Moon and family. Oh, that's very nice. That to me was. Yeah, it meant a lot to you. Yeah. yeah. Very nice. I love it. The leather jacket is. When I joined the Who, uh, it was one of my jackets, uh, I, and I put all these. I started collecting all these badges and stuff, which is all over it. And then Peter Blake did a painting of me wearing the jacket. Doesn't do portraits of anyone really. Did yeah. one of me. Wow. Just you wearing that jacket. Yeah. Wow. It's on the Who cover. Okay. Face dances. Right. And you can see the jacket in the road. Yeah. So, so the Hard Rock Cafe would pay good money for that jacket. <laughs> yeah. <probably. laughs> And how many drum sets do you have? Drum oh, kits do you have? I've lost count, man. But do you have the loads in your home, or you just no? There's too many to put in there. No. Right. They're, they're all in. You've got, you got a kit that's permanently packed up for uh, the road, which is my big, okay. big kit. So it's a flight right. case. You fill it for half this room up. Yeah. Right. And then there's another smaller one for sessions and stuff like that. Right. And then other, other ones I've still got stored about the place for. You know, that come in early for different sounds, different things. Yeah. And you start recording. And who for you is the greatest drummer ever? They're all different. They're all different because basically you've got Buddy Rich, who's the obvious one, who's most the best technician around. You know, and one of my favourite drummers is I used to love love the Shadows. So I learned to play years ago to some of the Shadows music when I was when I first got my drum kit. Brian Bennett. Yeah. In those days, it was Tony Nien. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Tony Nien was fantastic. Yeah. And then Brian Bennett 
to this place and I yeah. just fell in love with Brian Berry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's unbelievable. I think, to be honest, being a drummer, first yeah. time I met Brian Berry was, was, was great. That's good. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. Um, and he's mentioned this drum thing. There was Joe Morello, who's American dancer from Buddy Rich, there, and our English version of Joe Morello, or Buddy Rich, was a guy called Kenny Clare. Yeah. He's a top session drummer, and he gave me a write up once, and I got the game, and I was going to make front page. Joe Morello said, and what was great about it, the first time I saw Brian Bennett, is he walked down this, this, this like, cinema type aisle into this small theatre, and he looked fucking crazy. He looked, yeah, uh, a blue mohair suit on, tight clean. He had the longest cigarette I've ever seen anyone smoke, and he looked great. I thought, there's his shadows, don't mm-hmm. You know, so that's why I'm one of the fond members I've got of him. Um, what one song in particular that you've been involved in and you're most proud of, you think? All of them. But I've played on so many other people's records yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah, Mum, I was listening to the radio over the weekend, funny enough, I was, I was cutting the grass in the tractor at the club, and because we had a radio theatre, it's a brand new tractor, you know, I thought, hey, and suddenly bright eyes came on, and I went, Oh, I forgot I played on that. My yeah. Yeah. yeah, he called me up years ago and he, <laughs> he said, "Would you come along and play on, on bars with some I've got?" Yeah, yeah, great. You can't really hear what I'm doing about it, but you can. Yeah, and there's a turnaround in it. It's quite awkward in it. In it. So, you know, when you play one way, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, around the other. So I just remembered the song. I thought, "Oh, it's a lovely song." Played on Tommy as well, didn't you? Yeah. Played on Tommy when Mooney was out of it. Here and there. Uh, <laughs> and so, and I was, in, I, was in, I, was in, I was in the faces at the time. Yeah. yeah. God, you must have some stories about working on Tommy. That was incredible. Uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's in the book. It's, right, it's so. great. I mean, uh, Oliver Reed. Oliver Reed. But funny enough, when I first moved here, uh, there's a pub called the Punch Bowl yeah. uh, in Oakwood Hill, yeah. and I, I, I became uh, friends with his. It was the best pub around here at the time. Yeah. And a guy called Robert Chambers owned the pub then, and uh, and Oliver used to go in there as well. Mm-hmm. He, Oliver just moved to Guernsey or Jersey or something mm-hmm. for um, a tax then, you know. And uh, I walked in there, and Robert Chambers, the owner of the pub, said, Kenny, I've been told to give you this in a big ice bucket, a bottle of pink champagne, very expensive champagne. I said, Where's that come from? He said, Oliver, let's just send it in. So, <laughs> so I, I told him that you moved in. He said, give this to Kenny, dear boy. Just said, so, welcome to the area. Yeah. And that's it. <laughs> then Oliver came over during the next summer. And he invited me over to the pub again. So, and he had this thing, I walked straight into it, and he, he uh, had this thing called the Embarrassment Cup. I thought, Kenny, there you go. Like a big award, you know, a big yeah. cup, you know. And it's filled to the top, flowing over the top with pink champagne. Mm-hmm. So I picked it up like that, and I went, why is it called the embarrassment cup? There's nothing embarrassing about this, it's great stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. Then I went to put it down. So I went to put it back down on the bar, and I thought, it's heavy, yeah. full of champagne, and I've had enough of it. And I, so I went to put it down, you can't put it down, ever, because it's got a big bolt that goes through the bottom. So you, it has to stay in someone's hands. So that's why it's called the embarrassing cup. Now you must have met everybody over the decades. 
But he has given me the biggest thrill to me. I, I sum it up this way. I met just about everybody, yeah, you're right. Except my only regret, not meeting anyone, was Elvis Presley. Because in, in, the, in the faces, we, we were playing Vegas and we had two shows and we used to fly back in and out to LA. And uh, this, we had two Learjets. So we did the show and then we were going to get in the Learjet and fly back. But we were also invited to see Elvis at the Palace in LA and go back and meet him. So Rod and I were keen to actually get back to, to uh, we, we took one of the Learjets and went, went out early instead of going west. Woody and Mac and Ronnie went to see Elvis. Oh, and they did. Yeah. Wow. Told us that. You know, we had a great time there. So I thought that's my my, my biggest regret because that that would that would have been the icing on the cake for me. Yeah. I mean, at those days of meeting everyone was. So Rod Stewart regrets not meeting Elvis as well. Yeah, I don't know if you met him later, but an idea could have done. He died so well. Yeah. But no. It's one of my regrets, I don't. And Paul Weller and Bradley Wiggins are renowned mobs. Yeah, well, um, it's, well, I'm very honoured that Bradley Wiggins, were, when he did the, when he won his tour to France and did all his medals and everything. Yeah, um, the first person with him he, he came to see was me. Oh. He came down to her and brought his medals. I, I just couldn't believe it. Yeah. You must feel sorry for him at the moment. Well, I did read all this negative shit about him. And I went, you know, I don't understand. I don't think he would maliciously go do any, any cheating or whatever. It's not that kind of guy. But I just feel I don't know what. The, I mean, I don't want to comment on it because I can't know. Sure. I don't really know what, what's going on. Sure. But I do understand. Yeah, I do feel sorry for him. Yeah, he's still in touch. Like. Well, I'm supposed to be doing. They want me to do. He's doing a documentary at the moment. Yeah. They want me to go do a bit of filming with him around Carnaby Street in the Monster. Oh, that's great. So we just got to figure him. And Weller, do you see much of him? He's for Woking, isn't he? Yeah, I see him. Yes, I see him, yeah. yeah uh, I usually, I see him every Christmas anyway, because Woody has a party, yeah. and he invites Weller and stuff like that. Yeah, but Paul, I mean, if I walk in the room, Paul goes down there. Yeah, yeah. I imagine it's a mutual appreciation. I imagine you appreciate Oh, yeah, him. no, I appreciate what he does and all that. Yeah, he's, he's great. It's, it's like being interviewed with, with, with Paul. You know, he's like, what's it like, isn't it? What's it like? <laughs> 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 Yeah. They called him the mod farmer, and I thought, what the fuck does that make me? They've <laughs> <laughs> got no name for me. The great mod father. Yeah. Yeah. Ancient. When did you set up Kirkwood Farm? 1999, so I asked you earlier if you considered calling it Pitchery Farm, and you said. Yeah, sure, I, I, did, I did consider it big time, and I thought, no, it's. it's it, it wasn't quite hip to do it in those days. It, mm. it would have been meant a lot to me. It would, have been, it would be right now. But in those days, when you're trying to get planning permission to put a clubhouse up, the yeah. site was only set aside land, and it nestled into the the land is, sits, and you can, you can see the Surrey Hills, which came out with Herbert Hills. So I thought, oh, it's lovely. I had, to, I had to get a logo and stuff like that, and so I decided to put a logo in a friend of mine. And, uh, there's only there's a one of the things uh, the shield on the shield of the logo. There's a a, a, a bilberry that only grows in the whole world. It's not anywhere else in England. Right? So I got one of the flowers and I said, I decided, well, it means something. You know? yeah. So that's how I came up with her for part of it. Tell us about Mike and Angie Rutherford then, because obviously Mike's got well, Genesis and uh, Mike and the Mechanics. But well, Mike and I have been pals for a long time, you know, and 
when I first started to play polo, like seriously, I was trying to play it way before that. But then I, when I moved here, I, you know, I bought more horses. And then Cartier said to me, or said to Brian Morrison, Brian Morrison, he, he started the Royal Barks Polo Club. Okay, yeah. And he was a music publisher. Uh, I used to play at his place when I first started. And Cartier was one of the sponsors over there. And they said, oh, you, you should start a rock and roll polo team. So Brian said to me, right, got you, got you. Stuart Copeland was playing at the time. Oh, yes, yeah, So we called Stuart up and said, do you want to come and play polo with Cartier sponsored me. He said, yeah. Now, you, Mike, what both horses in those days. So I called Mike up and said, why don't you take out polo? <laughs> so, so he took out polo mm -hmm. and we ended up becoming a, the world's first ever rock and roll polo. What did you call yourselves? We did call ourselves that, and I can't remember what it is. Okay, so quite successful? Well, we ended up playing, you know, in America and all yeah. a few places. Yeah, we had some fun. It's, it's not what I would call band success or anything like that. It was, it was just a bit of fun, and we, had, we went to some exotic places and stuff. Did you play with or against the royal family at all? Because they're big on poker. Yeah, well, the, the, uh, yes, uh, uh, well, especially in Hurtwood, because when I developed Hurtwood, I, I, we had spot sponsors coming out of our yin yang in those days. You can't get a sponsor to save your life now. Mm -hmm. But I did a lot of work with the Prince's Trust, and so we asked Prince Charles to come down, and I, knew, I had to find the charges. In those, in those days, he charged 20 grand. Really? Well, for, for his charity. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. For the Prince's Trust. Yeah, so it's yeah. all in there. It wasn't for him. Yeah. So I, I had to find a sponsor after we yeah. paid that money to yeah. down. So that's how he, that's how he, he came down to, first came down to Herman. Then he loved coming down all the time. I got to know him quite well. He's, a, he's a, such a great, a dry sense of humour yes. person. And um, I heard that he was a goon slayer. Oh, yes, indeed. Yeah. And I said to him, what immediately come to mind was the fact that, you know, I knew it was a good stand anyway, before all that. And then I remember being in the, in the, in the East End when I was a kid, and the radio was one of those... Yeah, 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 yeah. It's st Stepney is like literally a stone's throw from Buckingham Palace. Yeah. Where that's a crow flies. And I'm, he's the same age as me. Which, uh, <laughs> so, and in fact, I'm a bit... I'm a bit older. Really. I could imagine him in the in the palace going, tuning into the same program. <laughs> so I called it the Prince and the Poor, basically. <laughs> that was, so I put that in the book. But, but you know, he's. Uh, I said to him, uh, I hear you, you're a big goose fan, sir. And he went, yes. <laughs> so I said, oh, so I hear you've got a great collection. He said, yes. So I said, well, I said, I'd love a copy of that. Your collection, and would you? <laughs> I was pissed off. Yeah. <laughs> That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of little things came out, antidotes like that. Uh, yeah. Did you meet Diana? I did, yeah. When we did Live Aid, uh, and before that, down the music industry, different, different pieces, trust things. Yeah. When they were together. What's your memory of Live Aid? Well, you, it was just a wonderful thing to be, be a part of at the time. Yeah. My memories of it is I learned to fly helicopters around that time. Mm. So I learned to fly helicopters. That's why I stuck out because I'm quite proud that I, yeah. this little nut from the East End mm. ended up flying helicopters and Incredible. playing Prince Charles and having a pilot gun. I think this is nuts. You've come an awfully long <laughs> way. Like this yeah. is nuts. You know. Yeah.
Did he run the helicopter? Yeah, and that only one with David Essex and I bought one. Did, yeah. did he pilot that? Well, what happened was, while I was learning to fly at Fair Oaks and Woking, I answered the phone one day. And this guy said, Oh, hello, can I speak to someone about learning to fly helicopters? And I said, I thought, this sounds just like David Essex. He's yeah. a, a great mate of mine. And he kept talking. I said, Yeah, yeah you're right, you're right for you. there's no one here at the moment. And he kept talking. And I said, David, is that you? Yeah. And he went, Kenny. I said, Yeah. I said, what are you doing there? I said, I'm learning to fly helicopters. So I said, Get in your car now and come down here. You must have grown up in the same area as well, didn't you? Yeah, he was, he grew up West in Town, like. he, he grew up in Cannon Town. Yeah. Did you ever carry anyone famous in your helicopter when you were flying, when you were pilot? Well, I learned to fly. At that time, Noel Edmonds uh, just, oh, yes. he just passed his test. Mm -hmm. So he, he ended up, he and a mate of mine, who I got to know as well, a guy called Jed Hughes, they bought a brand new, well, not a second-hand squirrel. Yeah. So he used to fly it around his red one. I used to go off with, with uh, Noel and I used to go off and do stuff and whatever. And we, I remember we were on one journey to see Jed, Jed Hughes, who was the other, his partner, the Jed helicopter. He was in the fruit and veg business. So we went off, to, we were going to see, meet Jed in his factory. So the two of us, me and Noel, flew up there. And then we, on the way back, we got stuck in bad weather. So it was coming in thick and fast. Yeah. So we made the decision to, to land somewhere and then it, and the weather going system to go past. Okay. So we landed in this big mansion's garden and we didn't know but we landed, right? And, and of course it was this young family's son's birthday yeah. party there. And me and Noel Edmonds go out. So <laughs> it was just one of those things that made their day. I bet it did, yeah. As well as polo, you have some great concerts there, don't you? We do because, yeah, we, there's music, is part, we've got all this sort of land, I think. And I thought, well, we can do an outdoor concert and that'd be great. Is it once a year or something? Well, we're trying to, yeah, uh, we've done a lot of, mostly for charity, really. Yeah. And so we've done these concerts there over the years, small, we started out small, but then we ended up getting bigger ones and stuff like that. I mean, when we, when we did, um, when we, Prince Charles was come down, I mean, played Princess Joyce, and, you know, and then eventually the, 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 the boys used to come down, and they were in the Pony Club, that sort of thing. And nobody knew they were there. We didn't tell anyone, but they they grew up. They don't know anything. Which famous artist to perform music that's uh, apart from yourself, obviously? Well, apart from the Who and the and the Faces and whatever, there's we have a list of like loads of are really. Yeah. You know, but and do you when you perform, do you play the hits from the Small Faces, the Faces, and yeah, uh, because that's what the they who. expect, really. Yes. We, we had a, uh, my band, the Jones Gang, had, had a number one hit in America with a song called Angel. Right. And a great album around it, it was really great. And um, we started out playing all that and building up our reputation, but everywhere we went, because uh, I'm probably the most well known member in the band, they wanted this song, that's real, all yeah. the hits. So our singer, Robert Hart, took. Paul Rogers' job after Paul oh, left. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Free. Yeah, free, yeah. Uh, yeah. Queen, back up, yeah. back up, yeah. Doesn't he do Queen now? Yeah. yeah. Paul Rogers did, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's for a short time, yeah. yeah. But it's before that, before he did anything with Queen. Yeah. And so Robert Hart was, was known for Bad Company. Uh, so the guitarist, you know, played with Bad Company. That was Bucket, we call him Bucket, his name is Cornwall. But they're all different line up now. Yeah. This is where they're here. So 
everywhere we went, they were asking for different songs from different bands. So yeah. we put up a great repertoire between the faces, the small faces, the you know the Who, uh, Bad Company, and stuff like yeah. that. So it's a great, great, great stage. Yeah. You don't know who's taking part though this year. Not, not right now, because trying to do it as a tribute to Brian Jones. Right. Which wasn't our idea. We was asked mm. by Donovan who had put it on for a charity or whatever. So he's kind of we were helping him and his family try to do the pull that together. Wow. So So will he be turning up Donovan? Yeah, I hope so. Singing a few of his hits. Yeah. Yeah, it. he's a nice guy. Yeah. Didn't Alvin Stardust live quite near here as well? Did you he know? Yeah, he lived locally. But he, he was the first one. He called me up when we first put our first rock and horsepower on for, for for prostate cancer. Yeah. And he said, Kenny, uh, I've heard you're going to do this concert. He said, I'd like to do something. I said, Alvin, I'll find you a place. No problem. So he came along and he did yeah. with his band. He did like 15, 20 minutes. And I said to him backstage, I remember talking to him. I said, I said, have you have you had Prostrate check. He said, "Oh, I'm dealing with that at the moment." Because that's what that was it. At the end of the conversation, I thought, yeah. oh, "Okay, he's taking care of it." Whereas, yeah. and then he died shortly yeah, after. Yeah. He knew he had it. He knew he was dying of it. Terrible. Yeah, he was a lovely chap as well. Yeah, I know. And the house band. What amazes me, the house band. There's about. It must have been about 12, 14 people, something like that, in the house band. And out of that, apart from me doing it, for, I had prostate cancer, and various other people. Three people went on to get in the band, went on to get prostate cancer, and one of them died. Mm-hmm. Professor Langley from the Royal Surrey was a brilliant guy, um, and he calls me up all the time, could you do this interview, could you do that? Because I, I thought I've got to go public about it. So I know there's a few people that uh, that sort of went all closet about it, and I don't want anyone to know. I thought I've got to tell people, you know, because you can save lives, but the earlier you catch it, you know, the better it is. And Stephen Fry at the moment is going through it. Have yeah. you been in touch with him? Have you offered him? No, not, not really, because I mean, you know, our paths haven't crossed, but right. you know, I'm sure he knows I, 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 I've done different interviews to different newspapers and different things. And, uh, uh, and what's your key piece of advice that if someone like him were to say to you, Kenny, what should I do? What would you say? Well, I, I, you've got to, um, you've got to actually get tested as soon as possible. Uh, the, the advice I give my son, who's 45 now, right, is get tested. I've been saying it to him for five years, and so he gets tested. It's fine. What shocked me when I was sitting in the Royal Surrey four years ago and in the waiting room there, waiting to see Professor Langley, and I went National Health by the way, which is unbelievable, brilliant, it was, and I, I was shocked to see how many young people. Young blokes are in there. I just couldn't believe it. I thought, you shouldn't be in there. You're old enough to get boss like this. That's when the penny dropped for me. I thought, hang on, this thing develops a lot quicker than people realise. So I tell everyone around about 30, you know, get start getting checked out. And remember, oh, what happens now? I was only talking to someone yesterday about getting checked out. So he said to me, I've got these symptoms. And I said, okay, well, he said, I've had, I went for a prostate test for my GP. And he said, you probably haven't got it. You don't need to buy it. I said, he said, no, he gave me a blood test. I said, well, what's your PSA level then? Oh, I don't know. He said, there's nothing to worry about. So I said, no, you don't take his word for it. This is where GPs get it wrong slightly, because they try to, they try to make their patient feel not right, not to worry about this. Yeah. But you've got to remember your PSA. So I, yesterday I said to him, just an example, I said to him, right, I want you to go back see your doctor 
uh, today or to the next day and I said shall I find out what your PSA was and have another one done now and let me know what the reading is literally up on, on Thursday your own health is now good? yeah I'd like to touch I caught mine just about in time just about I reckon I was living in denial for 10-15 years because I had all the symptoms and I was putting it down to drinking late you see I, I, I don't take any drugs and I don't smoke and whatever but I do like a glass of wine mm-hmm. uh, sure. so it's, I have a couple of glasses of wine and no more it's, it's, I, that's not to say now again I'll have a, I'll have a bottle you know mm-hmm. come with mates and stuff like that but I can't handle it anymore so I get yeah. out of that so two glasses of wine for me are really nice and I, I look forward to that this moment you know so I put it down because I don't drink during the day I don't do anything but at night I just sit down, look like everyone's gone, I just watch TV, catch my breath, puts me in the right frame of mind, done. Do you hope to live to a ripe old age? Uh, if I can stay in reasonably good health and shape, yeah. yeah. Nothing wrong with that, because I want to see all my grandchildren grow up, mm. and my kids, and as long as I can. And the penny is starting to drop now, because being 70 this year, going back to why I wrote in the book, uh, is, I thought, well... I better do it just in case anything else happens. Yeah, yeah. You know. So hopefully many decades to come when you finally do leave this planet, how do you want people to remember you? I don't know, I've got someone else. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, how, how I just to you is your I just want, I'd like to remember just being a reasonably nice guy and uh, and having um, people remember the music more than anything and and, uh, and uh, uh, think good things about it. You know, it's been it's been worth living. That's that sort of thing. Mm.